It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you with us this morning. I want you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark chapter 3 as we finish up our series that we have entitled Follow Me over the summer. We have invested our time and attention during this uh, time of preaching and studying of God's Word. Focused in on those 12 disciples that Jesus would call into his life and into his ministry. And we have learned from these men the incredible uh, excitement that uh, they no doubt had in following Jesus, hearing of his teaching and watching his way of life. And we are reminded that we too have been offered this invitation to follow Jesus. And our question is, how do we do it? How do we go about it? And we have learned both the good and the bad and sometimes even the ugly of what it means to follow or not follow uh, Jesus. And we have learned from these men, hopefully ways that we can emulate them in their good examples and in the bad ones to make sure we're eliminating those things from our lives so that we may follow Jesus in that way. I want to thank a couple of the other pastors who have filled this pulpit over the summer, Pastor Phil, Pastor Steve, Pastor Bill. Pastor Josh, it has enabled Amanda and I to go and visit each of our uh, campuses and to open up God's word and to share uh, from that and to enjoy fellowship. And I'm just here to tell you, as you'll experience tonight at Village Fest, that the spirit of Almighty God is alive and well at each of our campuses and God is up to great things. And uh, I'm really excited about what the future of not only uh, God's kingdom work, but Village Bible Church is in the days to come. And my visits with them have only increased that sense of excitement. Uh, but with that, let's close out this series focusing in on these last three disciples. And the reason why we can take care of three disciples in one week is that the Bible does very little recording uh, of these individuals. And I want to be careful not to uh, try to fill in the blanks or fill in the gaps, but to simply take what we have in Scripture and what we have been recorded about them. And what I want to do is introduce you to these three men, these obscure men, these men that we say, who are they? And then I want to apply three uh, lessons that I think are important, not only from their lives, but also from our study uh, together. So let's look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 13, and we are told, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. This is the calling of the twelve. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that that they might be with him, And then he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew who also was named Nathaniel, Matthew the tax collector, Thomas the doubter, And then the three that we have today, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's just stop there, and let's thank God for his word and our time together. Father God, we come before you, and we thank you for Scripture. And we thank you for Scripture maybe in a different way today than we maybe might do other days, and that is we thank you for simply speaking a record of lives lived. While this passage in many ways doesn't have much 
excitement to it for us, if you will, from a human perspective. A list of names tells us that lives were lived. A list of names tells us of people you created. A list of names, especially this one, is a list of people that you called into ministry and into your kingdom work. In a list like this, we are reminded it comes with good experiences, bad experiences, and even ugly experiences. It comes with all manners of personalities and certain bents and ways of living life. With a list like this, we come to a place of recognizing that you can take the broken, you can take the flawed and the dysfunctional of the world, and you can use them to do extraordinary things. So we praise you for your word this morning. We praise you for your word because you've listed names, and we are reminded, Lord, in the book of Revelation that our names are written in a book as well. And Lord, I pray that because our names are written in that book, that we would make it our goal, we would make it our priority, we would make it our life's calling to follow you wherever you would call us to go, to do whatever you would call us to do. Use these men as examples of what it means to take you at your word and to have their socks knocked off by all that they experienced in you. Lord, we, we want to be blown away what it means to follow you. So take away anything that would distract us from this moment, and I pray, Lord, for a sweet time of communion as we gather at the end of this service around your table. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. As we close out this series, I pray that it will serve as an encouragement to a certain group of people within our church. We have spent a lot of time talking about those who are in the spotlight, for those who have in many ways the priority, the leadership gifts and abilities, the ones who speak up, the ones who seemingly are a part of all the action. But this morning I want to preach an encouraging word to those who are behind the scenes, to those who are never on the stage, to those who are never under the lights, to those whose names won't show up on websites or in ministry guides or anything like that, but who faithfully, who faithfully serve and walk with our Lord in obscurity. This morning we are given three names of people who we know very little about, but I can tell you this, they love Jesus and Jesus loved them and that Jesus gave them great opportunities to serve. And while we don't know of them, we know that Jesus never does things badly, and so he used these men to the greatest uh, abilities of their lives, and we are blessed as a result of it. You see, the Bible is full of storylines of people who are changed and transformed by his gospel. We have the 12, of which we've dedicated time and attention to. We have women that we will learn about um, throughout the gospel writings. The women who were there during Christ's ministry. The women who were there at the foot of the cross when none of the men except for John would be found. The women who were some of the first people to know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, why didn't we talk about them? Well, the preachers at Village have assigned next summer to be the summer for the ladies. 
we're going to dedicate a second installment of this Follow Me series on the lives of the women closest to Jesus and what we can learn about them and their following of God and his word and his son, Jesus Christ. But we're also told that there was a group of 72, 72 who were sent out to preach the kingdom of God, to cast out demons and do all amazing signs and wonders. And then we are reminded in Acts chapter 1, after the ascension of Jesus, 120 waiting in the upper room for the promised Holy Spirit. Don't ever get your, excuse me, your mind on this thought that God only used the twelve. God is in the business of using people from all backgrounds, from all places, with all personalities, with all different gifts and abilities, and he wants to use you to change the world, and he wants to do that by transforming you and I as followers of his. And so the storyline of the Gospels are filled with nameless individuals, who get no credit for really anything, who get no opportunity to shine in the lights, but their lives had a part. The Babylon Bee, the satire publication on the internet, uh, made uh, some fun with this and saying that they had the storyline of some of the obscure disciples and they wanted to name some of them and this is what they put. They said there was first Barry the sound guy, He lugged incredible amounts of sound equipment all over Israel for Jesus, and as always, like our sound guys here, got zero credit for it. Well, your reward is great in heaven, Barry. Then there was Evan, the bass player in Jesus' ministry, notorious for feuding with Barry, the sound guy, about sound levels. The only people laughing are the sound guys. Then there is James the even lesser. He was really a pretty good guy. He just didn't hang out with the other Jameses. And we're going to learn James is a pretty popular name in the day. Then there was Jerry the moderately zealous. There was Simon the zealous or the zealot. But this guy was moderately zealous, a somewhat regular sermon attendee. He volunteered on occasions. His name might have been Gary, but the translation is difficult and no one really cares. Then there's Kevin, the CrossFit guy. He was a part of the disciples. He never really shut up about it. Eventually, he got kicked out for being in a cult, maybe a little too close to home for some of you. Then there's Judas. This is one of the ones we're going to be talking about today. Not the bad one. Incredibly kind and loyal guy, just with a terrible name. Eventually, they changed it to Leroy. Then we got Lonnie, best known for having too much wine at the wedding in Cana and breaking out the worm on the dance floor. You do that at a wedding, Jesus is going to set you aside for a little while. Then there's Todd the screw-up, though not named Todd. uh, Todd stupidly told Jesus to send the children away, and his idiocy has been recorded for all posterity. Good one, Todd. Then there's Steve. What more can we really say about Steve? We're just going to leave him there. And then, of course, Clarence, the social media guy for the disciples. He managed many ups and downs and followers, but despite his efforts, the disciples eventually all got kicked off of Twitter. How sad. A little fun to tell us that God uses all kinds of people. 
And he uses them in many, many different ways. And today, we have the difficult job of trying to put a sermon around three very obscure disciples. And my hope and prayer is what we have for you today will be of great benefit and blessing to you. So let's jump right into it. First of all, we need to know who these guys are. We're introduced from this list in Mark chapter three. We are introduced, first of all, with James, the son of Alphaeus. The only thing we know about this guy is his name and his father's name. We don't know anything else from Mark chapter three. The Bible never has him speaking. The Bible never says this is what James, the son of Alphaeus, did. In fact, the only thing we get about this individual is found in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. If you want to turn there for a moment, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. The setting is, is the cross and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we get another list of people. Mark announces who is at the crucifixion observing what's transpiring to Jesus on the cross. And in verse 40 it says, there were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. So we get James's mom is Mary. She obviously is a disciple of Jesus. And James had another brother because, and it, it starts with a J too. It's one of those families that all the kids start with the same letter. That's what they did. And we've got Josie's. That's all we're given about this guy, except this. The phrase that his mother, his mother of James the Younger. If you want to underline in your Bible, that is the Greek word micros. And the ESV is translating it that micros, little, means younger. Most scholars believe that this word micros may have meant that he was one of the younger or a younger brother, or it could mean that he was diminutive, he was small in stature, and that he had gotten this nickname of being a micro version, if you will, uh, of someone else. Now, we are told that he is the son of Alpheus. Now, we don't know anything about Alpheus except for this, that Alpheus, another Alpheus, or the same Alpheus, is the father of Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. And so the question is, are they brothers, Matthew and uh, James? Are they brothers? Thank you very much. Couldn't remember. Too many names going on today. James and Matthew, are they brothers? Nothing connects them. With Peter and Andrew, James and John, there's connections. There's, first of all, the, the very mention, they're brothers. So it was the pattern for the disciples to be connected with their families. Matthew and James are never connected in that way. Uh, the second thing is the name Alpheus was a uh, common name. So it could have been a lot of Alpheuses um, around. Or it could be that, like some of you, you don't like hanging around your brother, even when you're in a small group of people. He's on one side, you're on the other, and the two never, never meet. We just don't know. But we know that this man's dad was Alpheus. We know that his mother was a follower of Jesus Christ. We know that he had a sibling. Uh, this is what we know. Now, church tradition, church history tells us that this man would go to Syria, Iraq, and Iran 
and preached the gospel after Jesus ascended to heaven. Some say he was beaten to death. Others say he was stoned to death. Still others say he was crucified. We just, we don't know. James, the son of Alphaeus. How about Thaddeus or Judas or Labius? Three names for one guy. If you think uh, understanding the disciples is a problem, this is what creates a problem. These guys had lots of different names. And Jerome, the early church father, called him Trinominus, the man with three names. That's, he just created a different name for him, and it was a name to say he had three names. Now, why does this guy have three names? There's a couple ideas. First of all, none of the, none of the names are any good. So this guy doesn't like any of the names that is given to him, and let's give a reason why. Number one, his first name is Judas, and Judas was great. Judas was a great name, meant praise. Spoke about the kingdom of Judea. It was a common name in the day. And you'd think, why not keep that name? Well, because every time the Bible talked about this Judas, it always had to give this caveat, not the one who betrayed Jesus. And so this Judas, it may have been that his name had become mud, an adage that we get from a moment in history from the days surrounding the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. That phrase, your name is mud, comes from a doctor who would have the opportunity, one that I'm sure he wishes he didn't have, of setting the broken leg of the assassin John Wilkes Booth. Remember John Wilkes Booth jumps out of the balcony of Ford's theater onto the stage yelling sixth temper Tyrannus. And as a result of that, he needs to get his leg mended, fixed, but he's running from the law. And he comes to the house of Samuel Mudd, who's a doctor. Doctors are given the job of taking care of anyone who's hurting without question. In the middle of the night, he sets the leg of John Wilkes Booth. Now some say, and he contends he didn't know who he was, but as word got out that this doctor, Samuel Mudd, fixed the greatest criminal of the day's leg, his name became Mudd. He had to move. He had to close his practice because his name had become Mudd. His name had been associated with a devious person and a devious act. Judas's name, no doubt, had become mud. That every mention of this man in any of the lists of all of the gospel has to say, I'm not him. And I wonder if later in his ministry, because no doubt when these men would go and preach the gospel and say Jesus had done all these amazing things, all these amazing miracles, they would take your breath away. The first response of people would no doubt be, well, if they were so great, and so life-changing, why would one of your own Judas betray you? And by the way, are you him? I'm not him. That's another Judas. And so maybe he changed his name for that. Well, he had another name, Thaddeus. Thaddeus isn't a much better name. Thaddeus in Hebrew literally means breast child. Um, or could be rendered one who suckles. Talk about going on the playground with that name. You can get beat up for a name like that. So most scholars believe that this might have been a name that he was given as a kid, a derogatory name, and it may have been because he was a mama's boy. And this is the name that 
has been given to him because his mom had all too much sway in his life as a young person, maybe as an adult. We, we don't know. But it was a name that, that doesn't seem too empowering as a young man. Then there was another name that he used that it's recorded in Scripture, Labius. Labius literally means a heart child, speaks to one who is more emotional, more and more tender-hearted. Again, we know nothing about Thaddeus, and we're speculating about his name, and I'm doing that just to keep a little more time on the clock for me. But we really don't know. But thankfully, we don't just have his name recorded in Scripture, but we have some words from him. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, this is the only time one of these three men speaks. This is the only line in all of the grand narrative of the Gospels that we have from Thaddeus, Judas, Labius. And in John chapter 14, verse 20, we hear Jesus talking. Now remember, this is the upper room that Jesus has just said he's going to prepare a place for the disciples. Jesus had just said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is talking about now the promised Holy Spirit. And what Jesus declares is the following, starting in verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Meaning, that person who obeys God, who follows his commandments, is being promised by Jesus that Jesus will deeply relate with him and live with him and make himself known to him. Now, I want you to see what Thaddeus says. Thaddeus speaks up. Judas, look in the parentheses, not that guy, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? I want you to see two things here. One, Judas puts himself into that group of people who obeys his commands and who loves Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop him and say, what are you talking about? You're not doing this. So we can surmise from his response that Thaddeus, Judas, Labius is a guy who longs to experience Jesus in his fullness. And not only is hungry for that for himself, but he's hungry for that for others. Will it be that only we, the 12, get to experience this Jesus, this deep and intimate relationship with you? Or is this available to all of the world? Of which Jesus says, if anyone loves me, keeps my word, my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So. Judas, Thaddeus, Labius really longs for people to experience the same relationship that he's experiencing. He wants the whole world to experience. Boy, listen, what a great testimony of an obscure man that he loves being one with the Lord 
and he longs for everyone else to follow in that. That should be our heart cry. Number one, that we would love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor so much that we would introduce Jesus and that kind of relationship with them. Of this, there's so much obscurity about this man's later life. We don't know exactly. There's one storyline that says um, that there was a king in Syria and uh, he got very, very sick. And as a result of that, people went far and wide to find someone who would come, a physician that would come and, and take care of him. And uh, Thaddeus somehow was brought before the king and Thaddeus, according to church tradition, healed him miraculously, instantaneously. And as a result of that, a great revival broke out in the nation of Syria. Again, we don't know the full veracity of that because there's other stories about him. We just don't know. Uh, it is said by one church historian that he was imprisoned and then beaten with a club later on in his life, which would confirm that Thaddeus was what we thought he would be, a faithful and devoted follower of Jesus and one of great courage. Third guy, Simon. Now here's another Simon in the group. Now we are familiar with Simon Peter, but he would use Peter exclusively after meeting Jesus. This Simon we know very little about. We know nothing about his lineage. We know nothing about his upbringing. We don't know who his parents are. The only truth that we know is that the Bible calls him a zealot. Now in Mark chapter 3, verse 18, it says that he's a, he's a Canaanian. Uh, and we would uh, surmise from that that what that means is he's from Cana of Galilee, from the land of Canaan. But that's not what it means at all. In fact, that word Canaanian literally means one who is zealous. So we don't even know where he's from. What we do know is something about him. He's zealous, which could speak of his passion, his fire. It could speak of his personality. But it sure seems that it's not so much, and it, and it probably does speak to his personality, but more who he associated with. Uh, turn your attention to the screen, and let's look at this. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, three main Jewish groups existed at the time of Christ. And we're going to sit here for a moment. First, we have the Pharisees. Everybody knows about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. Uh, they were the conservatives of the day. Uh, they were the individuals who believed that intimacy with God began and ended with your relationship with the law. Not only the law that was recorded in the Talmud and the Torah, I'm sorry, in the Torah, but also that which was written in the Talmud, which were the rabbinical writings of the day. And so they had these whole set of rules and regulations that were outside of the scriptures that said if you want to have a vibrant and healthy relationship with God, it began with your uh, holding to all kinds of laws and separating yourself uh, from the world through these laws. They carried the day. Most Jewish people followed the leading, followed the teaching of Pharisees. Then there were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were uh, a, a select group of rich liberals 
who did not believe in the supernatural, nor did they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now these individuals saw the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets to be morally symbolic, more words of proverb than actual words of commands. And so like the liberals of our days who symbolize and who allegorize and who, who um, proverbize the teachings of Jesus, they were selective on what they would believe about the law and what they did and altogether saying the law wasn't a group of do's and don'ts, list of do's and don'ts, but more just principles for us to live by. Uh, they were not known to be a passionate group of people and they were um, the liberals of the day. The third group were the Essenes. Now the Essenes are never spoken about in the Bible, but they're written about in antiquity over and over again. And the best way to envision the Essenes is the monks of our day, the individuals who are deeply religious and who want to have a close and intimate walk with God but believe in order to do that, you must separate yourself from all the encumbrances of commercial life, of secular life, of connection with the world. And so the Essenes would go and find themselves in far-flung places of the world in isolation, living in, in what were ancient monasteries and communes of, of people. And then there were the Zealots, and the Zealots were this group of individuals who were founded by Judas of Galilee, not the same Judas from our text, and Zadok the Pharisee. And Josephus, the historian, notes that the Zealots agree on all areas and things with the Pharisaic notions. They agreed with the Pharisees, but they had this inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. So they fell in line with the conservatives of the day but they went even farther and said, the Pharisees said, you can follow God, you can obey his commands and still be under the oversight of Herod, over the oversight of uh, Caesars and Rome. You can do that. The zealot said, you can't. God created us as a nation. God is our only king. And so we have to only serve God. We only pay taxes to God. We only uh, serve in the military of God. We don't do anything with any outside authority. Now, Jesus' teaching would have ticked off the zealots. Teachings like render to Caesar what is Caesar's and what is to God's God. Uh, the teaching of Jesus when he says to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world to not avenge, to let God repay. Pretty much the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount they would have had issue with. The zealots weren't fans of Jesus, and yet here we have a disciple who's a zealot. Let us be reminded that Jesus would be traded on Good Friday for a zealot. Remember, Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd, and the crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him, of which Pilate says, well, listen, every year at your celebration of Passover, we give amnesty to one of your prisoners, and they say, crucify Jesus and give us Barabbas. Barabbas the revolutionary. 
Barabbas the zealot. These were the patriots of the day. They sought to destroy Rome from ruling and reigning in the life of Israel. Their focus, their goal was a political one. They believed that the greatest answer to the problem was addressed through political means, through revolutionary means. Now, before we get any farther in this, I think there's a lesson for us in this today. That it is altogether easy for us as Christians to become zealots. To become zealots, especially in the political realm at times, and here's why. I'm as political as anyone else and love many aspects of our uh, political process and government. But if we are known to be more zealous for our political stances than we are our spiritual stances, then something's wrong. If we're not careful, we can start to think that Jesus isn't the answer. Washington is. Now, we live in a democracy and we live in a place where voting is important and putting the right people in office is important. I will not disagree with you on that. But if you think that by fixing the problem in Washington will fix human hearts, you are wrong. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book, Don't Trust Politics to Do What Only the Cross Can. He's absolutely right. And we need to be very, very careful because in our, in our pursuit of wanting to change our world, we can be like the zealots of our day who begin to think that by political means is the way to changing human hearts and only Jesus can change human hearts. Now, here's the great lesson and I wonder if Simon lived long enough to experience this because right away there will be some zealots maybe in my midst here who will say, but wait a minute, things change when when." When politics change things, great good can happen when the right people are in charge, and you're right. The answer is absolutely. But here's the problem. It's usually short-lived. In AD 69, the zealots would do what no other group of people would do under the oversight of the Roman Empire, and that is push Rome out of their world. For one year, the nation of Israel would no longer be under the rule and reign of Caesar in Rome. They would, by military and political force, push out the Roman Empire out of all of Israel. And for one year, it was the good old days. For one year, everything seemed to go great. And I wonder if Simon the Zealot was wondering, did I back the wrong horse? Because I followed Jesus, and Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. And for one year, I wonder if Simon's wondering, maybe this political thing had some real life to it. For one year, the nation of Israel would be a sovereign nation. That is until Rome said, okay, your fun and games is over. They would assign Rome, Romans, the, Rome, the Roman strongest general, Titus, to amass one of the largest set of troops known in human history to come to this little land of Israel. And Jesus prophesied about this in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. He says this, this nation, I'm sorry, this generation will not pass away until it sees the destruction of Jerusalem. 
so bad that Jesus says, he describes it this way, that one stone will not be left on top of another. Titus comes in with the Roman Empire and utterly destroys and decimates all of Jerusalem. And thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals are killed and Rome takes over again. And I wonder in that moment if the truth and the lesson that we can learn is that political means can win for a season, but in the end, the only answer we have to change the world is Jesus. Three men. We don't know what happened to Simon the Zealot. There's a whole bunch of conflicting reports of history of what happens to him. I'm not even going to uh, get into that. But let's, let's walk away with some, some takeaways this morning. Three takeaways I want us to have this morning. Number one, number one lesson, notoriety doesn't equate to intimacy. What I mean by that is personal notoriety, being well-known, being famous, does not equate to spiritual intimacy. These guys are completely obscure to us. And yet here's what I know. They love Jesus, and Jesus loved them. And they were used by Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter three, it tells us that they did some really significant things. They just didn't get recorded. And it's a reminder today, because especially as we look at this room, we can sometimes allow externals to change our perception. And here's the externals that I want us to be so very careful with this morning, and I want you to hear it from me. The externals say in this moment right now, I'm the most important person in the room. And what are the externals? The externals are lights, vocal amplification, a piece of furniture, you guys there and me here. And what can happen is, is that the externals can say, he must be the most spiritual guy in the room. And I want you to know right now, I'm not even close. I'm not even close. Because I know so many of you are far more faithful, love the Lord more diligently, serve the Lord more wholeheartedly than I do on my best days. And by the grace of God, I've been given this opportunity, and I pray I live up to it, and I pray that I never bring um, uh, a sullied name to it. But I don't want you to ever think that because my picture's on the website, or so-and-so's picture has a title to it, that they're more spiritual than someone else. Because listen, notoriety does not equate to spiritual intimacy. This church has been built on the faithfulness and the service of hundreds of individuals whose names will never make the paper. But I'll tell you this, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And they are loved by God. And they are communing with our Savior. And their sandals are too worthy for me to be able to untie because they are truly the faithful ones. And so maybe this morning you're sitting in obscurity and you're waiting, when does my opportunity come? When does my name get put in the spotlight? And your name may never have that, but know this, your works are known by your God. And he has a record of them. And he says, great is your reward 
in heaven. And can I tell you something? I got to imagine the rewards in heaven are better than standing on a stage. So stay faithful. Number two. Number two lesson I want us to walk away from. Diversity should not impact our unity. Uh, and, and this is true of all the disciples. They were all different. And likewise, we are all different. And we need to be careful. Diversity today um, can be a word that's code for uh, being the most important thing. It's important, but it's by far not the most important thing. But diversity, diversity, diversity in race and ethnicities, diversity in gender, diversity in age, diversity in social economics, diversity in preferences. Um, we see this most closely with two individuals, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. If there could be two guys more polar opposite of one another, it's these two. One worked for the government and one sought the destruction of the government. You wonder how dinner time was. One took taxes to make sure the government kept working. The other one sought in any way to reduce government in any way that he could. And yet, these guys that are so polar opposites of one another are brought in unity under one banner, and his name is Jesus. And so when we gather together as Christians, we gather together as Christians under a banner. We're different. We have different preferences. We have different ideas of maybe how we might uh, do things. We may have different approaches, different cultures, different uh, traditions, but when we come to Jesus, we're brought together. Never let our unity be dismantled by our diversity. These men, as different as they were, found unity in Jesus Christ, and we should do the same. Number three, and this is where we'll lead into our time of communion. The thing that we learn from these three men really from all the disciples, is that availability is the greatest necessity. Jesus said to these men, follow me. Now, I don't know where they were at beforehand. I don't know what they were doing. We don't know what their life was, what their occupation was. We know from James and John, they left their nets and their father's business, and they followed Jesus. But these were men. These are individuals. They had lives, and they left them to follow Jesus. And here's what Thaddeus tells us in his question about Jesus. When Jesus answers, who will I make myself available to? Who will I make myself known to? Who will I manifest myself to? And the answer is those who make themselves available to Jesus. So this morning, after a summer of learning about these disciples, maybe you come to the place and say, I wish I had a relationship like they did with Jesus. Why won't Jesus give me that? Well, Jesus says, I will give you that kind of relationship if you will make yourself available to me, available that you'll keep my commands, that you will welcome me into your life. So once a month, we come to a place of communion. And I don't think there's any better way for us to celebrate communion by examining our own hearts and asking this question this morning. Like these followers of Jesus Christ, am I available to Jesus today? 
Is there anything that I'm keeping from Jesus? Is there a sin? Is there a practice? Is there a pursuit that I say, Jesus, that's off limits to you? Is there a certain pursuit? Jesus, you don't go there, Jesus. That's mine. Jesus says, I want all of you. And the reason why I want all of you is because I want to commune with you. I want to make myself known to you. I want you to know me like you know nothing else in this world because it is there that the Spirit of Almighty God fills us. It is there where he reveals the wonderful truths of being in communion with him. And so as the worship team comes out and prepares to sing our final song, would you just take a couple moments and ask the Lord, Lord, is there some place in me? Is there something in me that's not available to you? And if the Lord by his spirit reveals something, would you confess that? And would you proclaim with the rest of the people in this midst in a couple moments that it's only through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, the gift given on the cross of Calvary, that we have the availability to enter into a relationship with Jesus at all. So let's 